I'm going to bring you a message this morning. The topic is Jesus. That's just the topic this morning. I couldn't go any higher than that, so I thought I'd go as high as I could go. The name of the message is, Do You See What I See? And it's from the, the testimony of an apostle, the Apostle John, who in human terms seems to be in Scripture, the one who was um, closest to Jesus, laying his head on the chest of Jesus, and that pictured um, the, the beauty of that relationship between uh, Lord and disciple, master and servant, um, a king and ambassador. John called himself, not apologetically, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Whenever he got around the Lord Jesus, the thing that was left with John is, wow, he really loves me. Jesus really loves me. And he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gave himself the title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And what's awesome is that if we can all grow in faith and our confidence of God's grace and his goodness, we can all say, hey, John, he loves me too. He really, really loves me. And it's not based on how much we pretty ourselves up or try to uh, go longer, do harder, do better. It's, it's not about striving for perfection. It's, it's, it's actually inverted. We, we want to do more and be more, not to get his love, but because we already have it. We want to we show our gratitude and our reflection of, of our joy and um, just our sense of being in awe that the king on the throne of the cosmos knows your name. And he came to you when you never would have given him a second thought. I'm just going to get bold with you. I plan on preaching the text this morning, but I'm having a pretty good time right now. That, that listen, you never would have called his name had he not called yours. You never would have given him a second thought had you not been his primary thought. You never would have knelt before the cross had the Holy Spirit not opened your eyes to the reality of the cross. And isn't it good that God came to you where you were with all of the force of heaven, with a relentless love that is immeasurable. He said, I want her and I want him and I'm going to show you my son. I'm going to call you to believe. And you said yes to the son of God. And God said no to your judgment. He said no to your crimes. He said no to your sins. He said no to your shame, no to your guilt, no to all the things the devil wants you to say. This defines me. God said no to any of that. He said, yes, my son, his grace, his glory is upon you. Hallelujah. John chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm going to take a moment and just pray for us this morning. I'm just going to pray for an easiness to you, for you to receive what he wants to give in this message this morning. So would you bow your head? Lord, these sublime truths are also the simplest truths. They place us in a posture of having open hearts and open hands 
They position us to be recipients. And as we look at these truths, Lord, I pray that your paternal love, the grace of God the Father through Christ the Son will be palpable in this room. And Father, in the midst of a darkened, cutthroat generation where hatred and anger and division and rhetoric that is set aflame by the tongues of men and women, I pray that there will be a blanket of refreshing grace like a beautiful snowfall on our spirit. And I pray, Lord, for those that don't know you yet, I just pray that somehow, through the gospel this morning, you would make Jesus known to them and that they would have that moment of wisdom and humility to say yes to your son whom you sent for their soul. We ask this together in that name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I don't know what you think of when you think of Jesus. I grew up in the Bible Belt. I was a church kid. I wasn't saved, though. I didn't get saved in my childhood. I didn't get saved in my teens. I didn't get saved until I was 24. It was 24 years before all of that stuff I heard in church finally cemented itself and galvanized itself in a moment of saving faith. And so all of those years up till the age of 24, when I saw Jesus, I just kind of had a caricature in my mind. And I didn't see him as he presented himself in Scripture. But when I accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life on August 4th of 1994, I'm telling you, a light went off. Everything shifted for me. Everything began to change. The Bible became alive to me. Love started coming out of its hibernation and its dormancy where I had shoved it down as a child through painful circumstances in my younger years. Love began to come up. I began to laugh, not, not the hollow laughter of a lost man or a drunk man like I had been, but the, the, the spiritual laughter of one who was tasting joy for the first time in his life. I began to see Jesus not as a, uh, a menacing man to run from because I had broken all of his rules. I began to see Jesus as a a, a loving, kind, giving, compassionate, merciful Savior, but I saw something on him that I had never seen before in all of those years prior to coming to him. I saw a crown on his head, and I said, oh, this is what I've been looking for. I've been looking for one who will govern me, who will lead me, who will shepherd me, who will take ownership of me, one in whom I can place my utmost confidence and one that when that confidence is given, he will never fail me. It's the king that I've been looking for. And while Jesus is many things to us, for me, when I think of him most often, I see him as my king. He was born that way. Somewhere around 2,000 years ago, God became human Eternity invaded time, light invaded darkness, and life came to displace death, which was ruling in dominion over the world. A Savior came. Do you see what I see? Well, let's let John tell us what he saw. Let's begin in some deep doctrine that I'm actually not going to spend a lot of time on, but I do want to mention it because John does this morning. When we look at Jesus as God's eternal son, there are three words I'm going to give you that John gives in these three verses. The first is this, deity. It is simply this, that we must recognize that Jesus is God. He is divine. He is one in essence. He is God. John said this, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And the Word was with God, and then he adds this, this massive statement, and the Word was God. Now, we're going to find out in verse number 14 that the Word is defined as the one who became flesh. Yes. 
God who became flesh. And so we already know that when John's writing about the Word in verse 1, he is talking about the Son of God who put on flesh the one that we call Jesus, the one whose birth we celebrate every Christmas. Jesus is divine. Jesus is holy. Jesus is God. There is no lesser to him compared to God the Father. There is no greater to him compared to God the Spirit. That they are in that mysterious doctrine, that theology, the triune Godhead, the Trinity, if you will. They are one and they are equal. And Jesus Christ is divine. He is God. He is not merely a way to God or one who came as an ambassador for God. He, as God, came to us where we were. Why? Why would he put, why would deity wrap itself in humanity? Because God knows that we as humans cannot understand deity apart from seeing him in humanity. We cannot recognize him nor identify with him nor have any comprehension of him until unless he came to meet us where we were. And where were we? We were trapped in humanity with no access to him except that he came to us. And he did. He was with God in the beginning. Also, eternality. He was in the beginning with God. I think every child eventually asks this question after some super smart Sunday school teacher taught him a lesson on Jesus being God. And on the ride home from church, that six or seven year old says, How could Jesus have always been? How could he have always existed? Who made God? Have you ever had that conversation with your kids? Yeah, that's when you turn up the radio and say, well, I'm, I'm meditating right now, children. <laughs> it's impossible. Listen, it's, it's a question not only children ask, it's, it's one that we wrestle with. And it, it is like many things in Scripture that you, you believe without full comprehension of why. It's, it's not a scientific. God lives outside of time, space, and matter. He, all of those things source themselves in him, so he's not trapped within them. And Jesus, the Son of God, God the Eternal One, God the Son, was in the beginning. It, it flashes us back to Genesis chapter number 1. When it speaks of the beginning, it's not speaking of Jesus being created. It's talking about prior to all things in the cosmos being created, all of the visible, measurable matter in the universe, all of time, all of space, every molecule and every massive planet. The Bible says before any of that was created, there was this self-existent triune God, Elohim, three in one existing together in perfect harmony, perfect unity. Anytime you teach on the Trinity, you're like three words away from committing heresy. So I always regulate myself, but I tell you this, that Jesus has always been, the Son of God has always been. He was with God the Father and God the Spirit in the beginning. When the story began to be communicated, long before the story began to be written by God, the author preexisted the story. That is your Savior today. Because of that, my friends, we see the third word that I want to give you that John gives us in verse number three. That's his authority. People don't like this one as much anymore. What does the Bible say? The Bible says all things were made through him. Through whom? Through the Logos, through the Word, through Jesus. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. You know, this is something that we just need to embrace. We, we have to recognize that the scripture teaches that Jesus Christ is the creator. He's not just the redeemer and the savior, he's the creator. If you, if you look in the New Testament, it's given in Hebrews chapter number 1, I believe verse number 3, it speaks of him being the creator. In Colossians chapter number 1, verse number 16, it speaks of Jesus as being the creator. Jesus himself speaks of this in the sense of him being before Abraham was the eternal creator. 1 Corinthians chapter number 8 speaks this. But notice what it says, especially in Colossians chapter 1. It says that Jesus Christ made all things, that they were made by him, that they were made through him. But here's the part that human beings wrestle with, that they were made for him. That speaks of his authority. That everything in existence was made for Jesus Christ. It was made for his glory. That everything in creation is meant to reflect back on this glorious creator, this son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We, we don't like that sometimes because, well, quite frankly, the human heart wants to be its own authority. 
You know, we don't have to teach our kids how to rebel. They're born with a PhD in rebellion. We have to unschool them out of rebellion. The Bible speaks a lot about rebellion being born in the heart of a child, and it takes extreme measures to drive that rebellion out. And then when we come to Jesus, when we are born again, when our first nature is over, overridden by our second nature, our second birth overrides our first birth, we now have the indwelling God not to perpetuate our rebellion, but to teach us that his authority is an authority that can be trusted. By the way, most of you don't have problems with God. Most of you don't have an issue with authority because of God. You have an issue of authority because somebody on earth did you wrong when they exercised authority over you. And therefore, something happens in the human heart where we don't want anybody having authority over us because we associated in former years that authority brings pain or trouble or lovelessness. And so it's not really an issue with God that you have. The devil tells you that, but it's not really. Anybody that has ever submitted to the authority of God through Jesus Christ our Lord by obeying and believing the gospel and has begun to walk that out, they recognize that he uses his authority for our benefit, not our demise. His authority is for our benefit, not our demise. All things are made for him. All things are made by him. All things were made through him. It's no overstatement to say that he owns all of creation. It's all his. And all of creation is going to give him the glory one day. Everything that you can see, everything with voice, everything that does not have an articulated voice now. The Bible teaches us in the book of Romans that the whole of creation is groaning for that fullness of redemption. R.C. Sproul passed away last week. For those of you that love theology, you should love R.C. Sproul. He passed away last week, and he has a book. Um, my daughter's not in here, so I'm going to tell you. Alicia's getting this book for Christmas. It's, it's under the tree right now, and it, it's, it's titled by R.C. Sproul. Is she in here? God help me. Merry Christmas, baby. All right. It's titled Hard Questions. And in there, he explores for a full chapter, what is heaven going to be like? What is heaven going to be like? What is heaven going to be like? And I was surprised to find this from a preeminent theologian like R.C. Sproul. He said to that question that our, our children often ask when a pet dies, will there be pets in heaven? And I'm thinking, I want to see what he says about this. He said that anywhere you see uh, the eternal state uh, uh, unpacked in scripture, you find there animals. You find their animals. And, and he says this, though it says nowhere in the Scripture that, that animals have any kind of redeemable soul, it says nowhere in Scriptures that they don't. And so I'm thinking to myself, and this is what his point was. He said, if all of creation is meant to eternally glorify the Lord, then the animals will be there glorifying the Lord. So now you have an answer for your children. I think if anybody had written that but R.C. Sproul, I would have said, what a wingnut. What is he talking about? But I loved it. I thought it was great. What's my point? My point is this. If he made it, he made it to glorify him forever. So whether it's human or angels or nature or animals, whatever it is, it is meant to glorify him forever. Why? He's the creator of it. He's the owner of it. Let's go into the second point. Beyond him being God's eternal son in deity, eternality, and authority, we also see this. We see Jesus as earth's shining beacon. I want to talk to you about darkness and light. That word beacon is not one we use a whole lot, but the definition of it is, is simply a fire or a light that is set up in a high or prominent position to serve as a warning, a signal, or a celebration. It's just a prominent light that is lifted up to a prominent place to serve the purpose of communicating something. And Jesus, in his mission, came to be heaven's beacon to gain our attention so that we might know what the Father has decreed from all of eternity. Let's look at that. First of all, I want to say about this light that it's an unquenchable light. Jesus is the unquenchable light. John wrote this, in him, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light, excuse me, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is extremely important for you and I that are believers in this age. I, I, I digested these verses years ago in a different translation. And it was a fine translation, but this verse wasn't well translated. 
It said the darkness comprehended it not. The actual Greek uses a word katalambano, and it just means to overcome or to seize or to take. And I think the ESV properly renders it, that the light came into the darkness, and the darkness couldn't win. The darkness couldn't smother it. The darkness couldn't bury it. The darkness couldn't keep it down. We see this in the natural, by the way. You walk into a pitch black room that is completely engulfed in darkness. All it takes is a match head two millimeters long to be ignited, and suddenly you have light that chases darkness away. Wherever that light goes, it moves it. It's the same way in the spiritual realm. Um, Friends, I don't want to paint a rosier picture than what Scripture paints concerning mankind, concerning this generation as all generations. The world has always been dark ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Satan, the prince of darkness, has come to share his, his goods, and he traffics in darkness. He loves obscuring things. He loves uh, uh, perverting things. He loves hiding things, covering things, bearing things, stealing things. He wants to take what God places in the world, and he wants to cloak it or cover it or remove it. That's just what he does. Unfortunately for humankind is that we're all born with a bend towards that. The Bible speaks of something called, that we call depravity. It just means that there is something in our fallen humanity. Jesus would say it in John chapter 3. He would say that the light has come into the world, but the men hated the light because they loved their evil deeds, which are practiced in darkness. So Jesus came as a light to illuminate, to expose. Light brings both, both illumination and heat. He came to warm up a dark world, a, a world that was cold towards God. And he said, I will come into that very world that is ignorant of me, and some of whom have rejected me willingly. And I will bring light and I will bring warmth. And in the end, the reality is this, that all of the darkness that exists in the world cannot and will not quench the light who is Jesus Christ our Lord. I'll take you to a couple of passages. Just listen, they won't be up on the screen. The Lord gave me these this morning. Just in the very end of your Bible, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, you can't get further in your Bible than that. That's where the Bible stops. And the Bible is giving us a scene of what the end of the age and the coming age is characterized by. And listen to the words that are consistent with this one who was with the Father in the beginning, who is light. He's still light at the end of the age, Revelation 21. John is getting a a revelation, literally, he is seeing in a vision the future place and a future time that is going to encompass all the people of God. And he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will never be night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. It speaks of the new Jerusalem being illuminated, not with a a celestial star or a moon. No, it's being illuminated by the glory that comes from this one who is Jesus Christ the Lord, illuminating the entire city. Never will we see any darkness in the eternal state. Revelation 22 verses 4 and 5. Here's some good news. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp nor sun for the Lord God will be their light and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Let's throw another ever in there and ever and ever and ever. Why is that important? Because right now you're living in a season where every source of information flowing towards you is magnifying the darkness in the world, the evil in the world, the fury in the world, all of the isms in the world. They're coming at us and we're being inundated with this constant layering of our hearts of doom and gloom and foul and fury. 
And yet in the end, if we are not careful, when we go through a day, and at the end of that day, we can come dragging in because we've been bombarded with all of the sources of darkness in this world, and we'll forget that the gospel says, no, Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever and ever. And he is the one that is light. So you got to choose whether you're going to walk in the sun or walk in the shadows. And I mean S-O-N, sun. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know the light's not dimmed. If you've ever had that, I remember the first time I ever got on a plane and I was flying out of Hartsfield going to Chicago and it was rainy and ugly in Atlanta and we were, it was just, you couldn't see anything. It was a morning flight, but it was nasty. And you get in the plane and it's nasty and you're hoping the takeoff goes well. And then when you fly for a little while, all of a sudden you do something, you break up over the clouds and lo and behold, it's been sunny the whole time. You were just on the wrong side of the clouds. That's the way it is, brothers and sisters. Listen, his light is shining all the time. It's just about where you're positioning your perspective. And if we're thinking, y'all are not getting me this morning. I'm telling you this. Faith takes you up above that cloud barrier and says, I may not see everything down here, but I know that my, the, the Son of God, my Savior, is reigning and ruling, and his light is permeating the cosmos, and in the end it will be that way. Unquenchable light, unparalleled light, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the baptizer. He came as a witness in order to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light just very quickly. John the baptizer, Jesus declared to be the greatest prophet that ever lived. So if Jesus said it, that settles it. Um, we don't have any miracles recorded that he did. Elijah did a lot of miracles. Elisha did a lot of miracles. Moses performed a lot of miracles, but it wasn't about miracles. There was the, the honor given to John the Baptist that he would be the forerunner for the Son of God. And the nature of his calling elevated him in the plan of God, the redemptive plan of God. It took John the baptizer who looked funny, dressed funny, had a weird diet. I promise you, you would not want him to come and preach at your church. You'd be like, who let that dude in here? The security team probably wouldn't even let him in the sanctuary. I mean, just like this guy is giving off a weird vibe. But John was like no other. And by the way, he ministered after 400 years of prophetic silence from God. So when he burst on the scene, God had not sent a messenger to Israel in four centuries. And so when he began to declare, to declare repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your empty religion. Turn from your self-righteousness. Turn from your immorality. The king is coming. That was his message. And then one day he saw the king. It was Jesus. And as Jesus came over the hillside, John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And John was declared to be um, in, in a very real and, and, and practical way a light in his generation but john says but he wasn't the light john the baptist would say this oh there's one coming after me that is mightier than i i'm not even uh, worthy to bow down and lace up his sandals you see nobody spoke like jesus nobody loved like jesus nobody had power like jesus in his day john was a welcome voice in his generation but John was simply an ambassador. He was a forerunner. He went ahead of the Lord to prepare the way of the Lord. Just a very quick practical application here. Um, Jesus is always to remain your focus. We need to love each other. We need to honor each other properly. We need to regard each other. We need to respect each other. But we will never be permitted to worship each other. There's not a person on earth that if they did you wrong, if they disappeared on you, if they died on you, if they were no longer in your life, there's not a person on earth that you can't go on without as long as you're going on with Jesus. He's an unparalleled light. There are times where we lose people that were lights in our lives, and it's heartbreaking. I don't make light of that. I don't pretend that that doesn't sting. It's gut-wrenching at times. But for the Christian, there is this bedrock that when we land upon it, we find that the Son of God is there. He never, ever 
leaves us. He's always to be the one upon whom we rely to be the light in a very dark world. Unfiltered light, by the way, very quickly. He's our shining beacon. And it's unfiltered, the light that is Christ. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. The true light, heaven's light, was coming into a darkened, depraved, dead world. I know that's not happy talk, but it's true talk. Apart from Jesus, the seed of Adam growing up and multiplying became a globe, a planet full of sinners. And God said, I will not leave them in their lostness. I will not leave them in their emptiness. I will not leave them in their depravity. I will come in the person of my son and the true light came into the world. I like it that it's unfiltered. And what do I mean by that? It means everybody gets to see it. Everybody. Come on, let's just do this. I haven't, I haven't kind of tugged on you in this way in a while. Um, you're not going to get to heaven and see a white church or a Hispanic church or a black church when you picture heaven, you probably picture it populated by people that look like you. That's just the way we are until the scripture gets a hold of us and we read verses like Revelation chapter 7, verse number 9, where it says, it's an innumerable multitude of every nation, all tribes, all people, every language, worshiping at the throne of the Lamb. <laughs> there was no filter. There was no obscuring the light. One of the joys of heaven is going to be, and I, I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but I've got an imagination. I think it's rather sanctified, so let me surmise this, that there will be moments or scenes in heaven where unto the glory of the Lamb, there will be generations that will worship Him in that moment, there will be tribes that worship him. In other words, I will watch a tribe of Africans from the 1400s worship Jesus before the throne like they used to worship him on earth, and I will be instructed there. I will see, oh, that's not Southern gospel. We'll, we'll, see, some, we'll see some 19th century Puritans, and they'll be worshiping the Lord, and we'll say, that's not Bethel. Some of y'all don't know what Bethel is, but... For the millennials, y'all feel me, okay. My point being is this. We'll hear it in languages that we didn't know here, but we'll know it there. And we'll have the pleasure of watching the pleasure on the Son of God's face as all of these tribes, tongues, and nations worship Him. You know, heaven is going to bless you, but it's not about you. We think heaven's about us. There is no strutting in heaven, Amen. It's the only commandment in heaven, thou shalt not strut. Why? Because it's all about him. And if it's all about him there, shouldn't it be all about him here? Just a thought. Unfiltered light. As we move forward into what the Lord has for us, I'll promise you something. Um, there will be a blending of cultures. There will be a blending of cultures. I don't even think we're going to have to work overly hard at it. But there's going to be a blending of cultures to the extent that there is representation of the honoring of Jesus that comes from different points but going to the same throne. Because my experiences with the Lord as a suburban white guy in his, how old am I? I'm coming up on 48. It's not the same experiences as an African-American female like Nia who, who's in her 20s and, and yet we worship the same Lord, but I can learn from her. Why? Because she's seeing Jesus through the lens of a culture that I can't see him. And what she's experienced in that culture is going to be able to help me to understand facets of the king that maybe I'm blinded to or at least filtered by my culture. See, Jesus came to take the filters off so you can see him as he is. So put that in your pocket, carry it with you. We'll revisit it in 2018. Not everybody was happy to see Jesus when he came the first time. And so let's look here, I'm, I'm wrapping up, at Jesus, humanity's undesired king. They didn't want him. 
He was unrecognized by the masses when he came the first time. Verse 10, John says it. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Think about it, guys. So when we read the the Christmas narratives and the biblical passages in the Gospels, and, and Jesus is coming to planet Earth, I mean, this is God coming to Earth. This is the Creator coming to rescue the creation. This is life coming to topple death, light coming to dispel darkness. This is glory invading shame, and nobody noticed. God picked a handful of blue-collar guys on a hill, sent as many angels as could possibly fill the night sky, and they sang a song about the birth of the Savior, so some shepherds got in on it. There were also some polytheistic pagans in the East, the Magi, the wise men. And they had studied enough religious books to recognize that the Hebrew book indicated that a star would arise when the Messiah of the Jews came. And so they recognized that the time had come. Shepherds and wise men. There were a few family members tied in close to Joseph and Mary. Elizabeth, Zechariah, sure. But in the grand scheme of things, nobody noticed when God came to earth. As a matter of fact, he couldn't even get a room. Because of all the pilgrims coming in for the census, there was no place for him. Some innkeeper said, I don't have any rooms for you, but I can tell that your wife's about to give birth and you, you can take up room in the stable. Um, we'll clear out some of the animals and we'll try to make it as comfortable as possible, but that's, that's all we can offer you. And Joseph, knowing that there was nowhere else to go, said, okay, and, and Mary, a teenager gives birth to the Son of God in a barn, in a stable, in some carved-out place. And the one who was encircled with a rainbow and flown around by the winged creatures and the, the cherubim and the seraphim in heaven, the one who was robed in eternal, undiminished glory in heaven, was on earth wrapped in the cheapest cloths that were available in a hurried moment and laid down in a trough where livestock drank their water. Nobody noticed. I think it speaks of the mercy and the grace of God that when he came on a mission that would not change who he was, he was glorious whether he ever came to earth or not. He was perfect in divinity, whether he ever visited this planet to redeem us. The mission was ultimately for his glory, but in in the beneficial aspect of it, it was all to rescue us. And the very ones he came to rescue barely batted an eye when he came the first time. You know, as I think about that, I think about my life. I think about how easy it is for me to go a day and not give him the honor that he's due in my thoughts. That when trouble comes, or friction comes, or disappointment comes, or pain comes, or loss comes, how quickly it is for, how easy it is for the mind to quickly latch upon the loss and not remember the provision. So when he came, most people didn't recognize it. I I just would say very gently to anybody who, who will hear me, he is working in your life right now, whether you believe in him or not. You don't have to believe in him. Just one thing I've learned about the Lord, he does not ask permission to do what he wants to do. He doesn't. He's too good because he knows that we wouldn't let him. If if it was up to us, we would say, no, I got this. I got this thing called life. But he's working in your life right now. He's moving in your life. For those of you who've never surrendered to him, he's coming to you in gentleness, grace, and mercy. He's operating right now like that to you. He's bringing you a message that he loves you, a message that he hasn't given up on you, a message that you haven't gone too far that his arm can't reach you, a message that though others have discarded you and discounted you and violated you and rejected you, that he has never done that. They are not him. He is him, and he loves you. And I want you to recognize that. 
I want you to just receive it. If you'll receive it, then you'll recognize it. I didn't mean for this to be about my testimony, but I can tell you this. God was the farthest thing from my mind between the ages of 20 and 24. I was living my life as one who believed he was saved. One who believed because I had prayed a a very sentimental prayer as a child and had been baptized as a teenager. I believed I would go to be with God. But between the ages of really all my teenage years up till 24, I didn't want to think of him. I just wanted to do my thing. It was only after he rescued me, as I testified earlier, that I was able to look back and see him in my history. Lord, that's why you sent that neighbor in Lilburn on Indian Creek Drive, who, it was a Pentecostal um, young guy. He was a little bit younger than me, and I was probably 20. And he would open his Bible while I was standing there drunk. And he would tell me, Jeff, you need to surrender to Jesus. I was only able to see God in him after the fact. My parents, who I was very angry at, told me that they prayed for me for two years with a group of people that prayed five days a week for my soul. I didn't know that then. I didn't see then. There were the occasional individuals who would mention the name of Jesus, and I, I just blew it off because I'd heard that name my whole life and didn't feel like he had done much for me. And then ultimately, when God got serious about me, he paired me up for 13 hours a day, three days a week, with a zealous bivocational Baptist youth pastor <laughs> who worked with me 13 hours a day, three days a week, and then did youth work on the weekends. And for, for two years, he just kept telling me about Jesus, kept loving me, kept holding my feet to the fire, and kept hammering away at my hard heart. I didn't know that was God. I just thought it was Scott. I thought it was Scott with his Southern Baptist irritation coming on me. And what I didn't know is that, isn't that interesting how God sent the Pentecostal and the Southern Baptist? I didn't stand a chance. I, did, I just. And now I look back on that and I see it was God. Why do I, why do I give you that, that personal story? Because um, I think when you'll come to him, you'll recognize that this moment today is another moment where he's reaching out a nail-pierced hand for you saying, I've paid it all, and I love you. And I'll receive you today. He was rejected as the Messiah very quickly, verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. It speaks of the Hebrews, that in Jesus' day, when he came first to the Jews, the Jews said no. And ultimately, in cooperation under the diabolical guidance of the high priest and the Pharisees, the people were moved as a nation to say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And the Romans did. He came to his very own. If you've been rejected, I want you to know, I'm telling you about a Savior who knows more about rejection than any of us ever will. He understands. But he was always welcomed by a remnant. Good news, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, and that's what it means to receive, receive Jesus. It is with a moment of heart, soul, mind, and strength, you release yourself to him, the one who loves you. You believe in his name, and to those he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. This is, this is the gospel. The gospel is not join the church and start paying tithes. The gospel is not work yourself to the bone so that one day you will be acceptable under the Messiah. The gospel is not to flail or flop or speak in tongues or to have heavenly visions and to go to the uttermost parts of the earth to, to bring the, the, the unknowing heathen the, the message of Jesus. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that every singular lost sinner is beloved by a glorious Savior who comes to them individually in a moment of time and says, I will take your sin away. It's the only thing that keeps you from me. If you will believe on my name, I will make you a child of the Father. That is the gospel. And it's the only gospel that's ever been given. It's the gospel that meets you where you are. It, it strips you naked. It does. 
There's no, there's no fronting in front of the Lord. There's no playing. There's no posing. It's, it just brings us all to the same place where we can't hide, but we don't have to. Because he's not seeking us out. It's just like the garden with Adam. Adam and Eve found themselves stripped down because of their sin. And they hid from the Father. And he was coming looking for them, not to destroy them, but to bring them securely back unto himself where he could shepherd them again. That's what he's doing today. He'll give you the right. That's a word that's in the Bible because the Holy Spirit chose it. It becomes your right when you believe on Jesus Christ. You have been granted the right to stand in your sonship, to stand as a child of God. He doesn't abandon his children. He doesn't abuse his children. He doesn't neglect his children. He doesn't reject his children. He doesn't starve his children. He doesn't toy with his children. He loves his children. He fathers his children. He provides for his children. He rescues his children. He instructs his children. He enlightens his children. And he sanctifies his children because he plans on glorifying his children. That's the one who's coming to you. And so in verse 14, and it's, I'm out of verses, Jesus is our unspeakable gift. Worship team, you can come on up, please. He's been talking about the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. He's talking about Jesus, and then he says this, and the Word became flesh. Christmas. That's Christmas. God became a baby. God became human. The Word became flesh. He didn't want you to just hear Him. He wanted you to be able to see Him, to connect with Him. I find it very interesting that God didn't just send a book. I love my Bible. I thank God for my Bible. It is the greatest material treasure that I have on earth. The greatest treasure that I can hold on earth is the Word of God. But it's very interesting to me that God didn't stop with just sending the words. He sent the living Word. He became one of us so He could rescue us. He was tempted in all points like we are, but he never sinned. He could not be our kinsman redeemer if he wasn't our kinsman. So he had to take, he had to take experience. Listen, this is awesome. It's simple, but it's just, it owns me. He took part in our nature so that we might take part in his. He came to us, and he still does. He's coming right now to all of us. So, well, Jeff, I'm already saved, my friend. He's not satisfied with taking you to heaven when you die. He said, I want to enjoy an abundant life with you right now. Yes, yes. It's, yes. About, it's about contact and relationship and experience. He's not a doctrine to be applauded. He's a savior to be loved and followed and embraced and trusted. And so the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then as Pastor Dustin said, we've seen His glory. We've seen His glory. We've seen it by faith, but we will see it by sight one day. But, I mean, I'm telling you, if seeing it by faith produces this much thrill in the soul, imagine the ecstasy that we're going to experience when faith becomes sight and we literally see the glory of Jesus Christ. We'll be with Him. We'll be in His presence. We will see him. He's still in the body that he rose off of earth with. He's not floating around up there in some disembodied spirit. He's literally in a glorified body. We're going to see him. And he's not going to look, hey, listen, he's not going to look like the pictures that are hanging on most of your walls. We're going to see him as he is. And in that moment, the scriptures say, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. John says that this one who took upon flesh, is full of grace and truth. And you know what? He's given you both this morning. He's given you truth through a message just all about Him. He's given you grace to respond to it. So would you stand to your feet this morning? If you're physically able, I'd like to ask you to stand to your feet. How do we respond to grace? We respond to grace with faith. It means wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you haven't done, No matter what you've ever believed beyond this moment in time about the Lord, I'm asking you today, do you see what I see? Do you see him as good as he is? 
Why would you not say yes to him? Why would you say no one more hour? Why would you shuffle your feet and wait another second? This king is good. And he reigns forever and ever and ever. And what he's doing right now is he's saying, anybody who will believe in my son will enter my kingdom and I will make him or her my child forevermore. He comes with truth though. You can only come through Jesus. There are no other ways. You will never find another way that will lead you to where God wants you to be. There is only one way, but that way is open. That way is free. That way is plastered. It's, it's paved with invitations. Come, come, come to me. The Spirit says come. The Bride says come. The Son says come. The Father says come. So would you bow your head and close your eyes? There was a day and time that I mentioned earlier when I fully surrendered to Jesus Christ and acknowledged Him as the Lord of my life. There must be a moment in time where you say yes in faith to Him. And that moment is today for some of you because He's torn down the walls and he's removed the hindrances, and he's inviting you to say yes. I'm going to pray over you, and then when we begin to sing, I'm going to ask you just to come forward. We're not going to make you say anything. We want to have somebody personally pray with you to make this moment secure in your heart where you receive Christ as the Lord of your life, where your surrender becomes full. Don't go into that moment alone and don't leave here not knowing. The sons and the daughters of God want to welcome you as much as the Father wants to welcome you. We're here to help you. Just so I'm being clear, if you're done with excuses and you're sick of the fear and you're tired of the not knowing and you don't want to run a day more apart from Him, you can come to Him now. So Father, in the name of Jesus, quicken faith. Make it alive, Papa. Bring to life hearts that have been dead or cold towards you. Bring an understanding of this rhema word that the time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Purge all fear, every excuse. We bind the enemy. He has no voice in this room. We hear you, Holy Spirit, welcoming. Come to the throne. Bow before Jesus. To as many as believed on him, he gives the right to become the children of God. In Jesus' name. Amen.